Please be seated. Uh, I want to welcome you all this morning. If, uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Justin. I'm uh, one of the elders, uh, but I am also on staff. And my uh, title on staff is kind of a different title. It's uh, Preaching Team Lead. Um, and, uh, and that sort of uh, encompasses a couple of things, or it implies a couple of things. First, uh, it implies that I have something to do with, uh, with preaching, um, and uh, that I, I care uh, for, for the, the act and the work of, of preaching uh, as it pertains to this particular body of believers. It also implies that there is a team of preachers that I lead. Um, uh, I've been here for almost four years now, and in that time, there is this uh, slow, gradual process of uh, uh, equipping and training uh, people um, towards learning how to proclaim what it is that they believe. Um, and so uh, last uh, spring, I gave a class that I repeated again last fall. Um, it's called the Basics of Bible Preaching Course, and it was open to anybody in the church, anybody of all ages, who wanted to know how to articulate what it is that we believe. How do I articulate the gospel? How do I articulate what Jesus has done for me? And, and it's not for those people who, who only want to be able to, or to, to proclaim that from a platform like this, but to be able to, to proclaim what they believe about the gospel, whether it's across their desk to a coworker or it's across their fence to a neighbor, uh, but we as Christians have been saved by this good news, and we should be articulate in it. We should be able to tell people who this Jesus is and what he's done for me. And so the purpose of that class is, is to, to help people uh, specifically in that regards. Now, uh, there were four individuals um, who, uh, who did very well in that class when it came to the practical side of things, and the, their classmates actually uh, sort of voted for them uh, to, to be able to, uh, to, to preach from, from this platform. And so uh, months and months ago, I set aside a portion of the, the Gospel of Luke, um, which we have been going through for a while now. I set aside a portion of that uh, called the Sermon on the Plain. And, uh, and I assigned it to four individuals um, to preach that. And so I'm really, really excited that the first installment happens this week. It's uh, from now and, and, and through, uh, through July, we get to see um, people who have not necessarily been uh, professionally trained uh, take the platform, uh, look at God's word, not, not in order to get... Uh, you know, creative with it, not in order to, to, to bring something out of it that's not there, but to reveal to us what is already there, what God has already spoken uh, for the purpose of reminding us of what the gospel has to say. And so um, I'm really, uh, really excited about this series, and I want to introduce Jake Gaiman to you. He's the, the first one who gets to lead this off, and, uh, and he's been, all of these, these individuals have been studying and practicing and getting ready for, uh, for this, and so I'm really quite proud of, of the work that he's put into this. And uh, so here he is. You Hello? ready? Uh, yeah, I think. Am I mic'd up? You're mic'd up. Cool. Here we All go. Right. So yeah, I'm Jake. Um, that was such a, a fun time. That was uh, two years ago, I think, that I took the class. And so thank you, Justin, for, for that. And um, I'm just so thankful to be a part of a church where we are disciples making disciples making disciples. Um, so I'm Jake. I, uh, I graduated from Cedarville just a couple months ago or... I guess it was May, so quite recently. And um, I've been going here since I was a freshman, so almost four years, and uh, part of uh, Clem and Julia's house church, the Spring Hill House Church. Um, but I'll be starting work here at Wright Pat, so I'll be staying local. I'll be uh, working as a, an engineer, and so not professionally trained, so 
and that's a good thing. So, all right, let me pray for us. Let's get started. Lord, I just, I thank you for the body that you have given us, the church. I just ask that you would equip us and prepare us to, to go into the world and proclaim the joy that you have given us. That the world would know that you are good, that you know what's best. I pray that we would begin to know the joy that you have set before us. I pray that that would be made clear this morning. I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So, before I went to Cedarville, I went to high school. That's kind of natural. But I, I'm from Pennsylvania. And uh, before I came here, uh, the summer, right after I graduated and came to Cedarville, Ohio, I, uh, I went on a missions trip. I went to Haiti. And um, I think the picture will come up soon. And I look nothing like I do now. I'm up in the corner. I don't, good luck finding me. But we went to Haiti, and we were, uh, it was my youth group. And there was a bunch of us, probably 20 of us, and just a couple of adults. And when we went there, we were expecting to teach a vacation Bible school to a church that we were partnered with. And we ended up being able to do this, but um, there were a handful of things that happened before we, we got to that. Um, when we got there, within about 24 hours, we were told that uh, there were rumors of, of protests and that they were going to be um, quite serious. The gas prices had been increased, and for people that are just barely making ends meet, um, this could be a matter of life and death. Um, they might not be able to get to work to pay for food that they're, they're already, some of these people are already malnourished. And so um, people went to the streets, and they started to, to riot and um, loot and burn uh, tires and trees and block the roads and, and really make clear that uh, this was not good for them. But we were stuck in the middle of this, and uh, we were already out in Archaea, Haiti, and uh, there was no way that we are going to be able to get back safely at this point. Um, things actually got so serious that the U.S. Embassy shut down, and um, all international flights were canceled, so we were quite literally like stranded there. Um, but the local police came, and they, they watched us and made sure that we were safe. So we waited it out for... I believe it was two or three days, and Sunday morning came, and we were told, looks like the streets are clear. Let's go for it. So we all jumped in the vans and started our drive. And I remember um, maybe an hour into the drive, seeing a lady to my left doing this like turnaround motion, like, you guys are not going where you want to go. Um, and sure enough, uh, we, we started turning around, and I remember seeing smoke ahead, and um, we knew what was going on. So we turned around, and I was expecting that we would go back to the hotel. But we ended up stopping at another church that we just saw on the side of the road, and um, that ended up being quite a blessing for us. Um, they, they certainly welcomed us, although we only had one translator for, um, maybe, maybe two translators for, for a large group of people. But they welcomed us in, and something that I, I remember as being really powerful was when we were worshiping together. Um, they were singing songs that we knew in English, uh, and they were singing in Haitian Creole. And singing together, it felt like we were, we were brother and sister, even though we didn't know each other. Um, and then the preacher came up, he started to preach. I have no idea what he said. And that's okay. I probably, maybe I should have prepared better and, and learned Haitian Creole. Um, I knew a few words, but uh, during this time while he was preaching, 
I was just praying, like, God, get me out of this situation. I was, I was so, so anxious and, and really, really worried. Like, man, are we going to get home? I mean, are we even going to make it back to the hotel? Like, I mean, what could happen? And uh, by the time he was, he was done preaching, another man walked up, and, and he started to pray. And he said two words that I did understand. He said, merci, Jésus, which means thank you, Jesus. And then the whole congregation repeated back to him several times, merci, Jésus, merci, Jésus, merci, Jésus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That caught me off guard because I was praying many things, but none of them were thank you. I could think of a million things to pray about, and one of them was not, man, I just thank you for this situation. This is, this is great. Um, what they showed me was that they understood that they were blessed because of what Christ has done for them. And their situation had nothing to do with it. My question for you is, who do you consider blessed? When you think of that word, who do you think about? For me, I think of someone with a six-figure job. Like, man, they're, they're doing well. Maybe a, a happy marriage. Maybe healthy children. Some of you may be a, a beautiful retirement home in Florida. Man, that, that guy's blessed. He's, he's, got, he's got it going good. With that, um, that's, that's what we think about. Who does Jesus consider blessed? We're going to open up our Bibles to Luke 6, 17 to 26, and Jesus will share his thoughts. starting in verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of him, came out from him and healed them all. This is, this is setting up um, the Sermon on the Plain. And we'll be covering the first part of this, the blessings and the woes. And over the next three weeks, uh, we'll be finishing out this Sermon on the Plain. So moving into verse 20, Jesus answers this. Who's the blessed? He says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's kind of heavy and not what I expected the first time I read this. Like, man, Jesus, what do you mean? It's, it's easy to, to spiritualize this and say, oh, it just means the poor in spirit. 
or the, uh, the hung, those who are hungry for righteousness. And, I mean, that's exactly what the parallel passage says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And although we don't have time to, to read that passage as well, certainly Jesus is saying something similar here. It's a similar message. But Luke decided to include this sermon and not that one. And so I think we need to give Luke enough thought to, to see why did, why did Luke include this? And why did Jesus say it this way to this audience? So with that, I think we need to look at who, who are the audiences of, of Luke and of Jesus. Luke, in the beginning of his gospel, uh, is addressing Theophilus. His name means lover of God. And there's debate about who Theophilus was. Uh, maybe he was a, a Roman official. There's a lot of speculation that that might be the case. Um, but maybe it's just a general name for um, a general title for people that love God. Maybe it's just, just addressing people like that, which hopefully should include us. But nevertheless, he also, in, his, um, in, the, beginning of Matt, in the beginning of Luke, says that he is uh, creating an orderly account, making a historical case for the claims that he's making, which implies that his audience is probably well-read, it's probably broader, and they're probably educated. And so they might be on the wealthier side. And if that's the case, it's interesting that he includes this message, which is, is less, the spiritual clarifications aren't there. Jesus just blessed are the poor. As for the audience of Jesus, I think this is really what's going to help us understand what he's saying. In the beginning, it says that, uh, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Mind you, there, there's a larger crowd here. And he moves his eyes and focuses it on his disciples for, for everyone else to see. And he says, Blessed are the poor and the hungry and the weeping and those who are hated. And he says it to his disciples. You know what the disciples had in common in their situations? Whatever they left for Jesus, in this state, they were these things. They were poor. They were hungry. They were weeping. And they were persecuted. You see, it's not that Jesus is telling us in order to be blessed, we need to be poor. Or all the poor people of the world, they're immediately blessed. And Yep, they're going to heaven, and if you have money, you're in trouble. You better sell it all. No, the, the factor that's separating the blessed from the cursed is the relationship to Jesus. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's acknowledging the state that they're in. And yet he's calling them blessed. We keep using this word, blessed, and, and we talk about rejoicing. And it says, woe to the... What, what do these words mean? It, blessed, just... It's not super clear. So let's, let's jump to uh, defining these terms so that we can enter into seeing what Jesus is really saying about his disciples and about those who don't know him. The word blessed here is translated from the word makarios, which means happy or fortunate. This word is, is not usually used to describe, um, it's, not, it's not really an emotion as much as it is a position. This person is in a blessed position. They are fortunate. And with that, they, they probably feel happiness. Um, but it's describing a position. So he's, he's saying that his disciples are in an enviable position, despite their poverty, despite their troubles and their weeping. 
But that's not all. He's not just saying that. He then commands them. And there's one commandment in this whole passage. He says, rejoice. The word rejoice is translated from the word hiero, which means glad or full of joy. And this is an emotion. You're in a, a blessed position. You're in an enviable position. So rejoice. Be full of joy. Feel that. And that's shocking to someone who is in a, a hard position. Why would you tell me to, to, to rejoice? If that's not shocking enough, Jesus then flips it on its head. And rather than saying, you guys are, are blessed, he then talks about the negative part of that. And he says, now woe to those who are in the opposite state of my disciples. He says, woe to you. The word woe means, uh, is translated from the word why, which it's literally an exclamation of, of grief. It's not, it's not really as much of a word as it is a sound. And I probably couldn't make the most accurate translation of that in English because it, it probably wouldn't be appropriate. So we're going to go with the children's version and say, oof. He's saying, oof to you. Yay to my disciples and, and oof to those who, who are not. He's saying the opposite of those who are blessed. He's saying that they're, they're in a pitiful position despite the fact that they've got everything going for them in the world. What Jesus is, is really getting at is the fact that we all want to be the blessed person. That's, that's what we all desire. It's, it's, it's in us. We want to be happy. Everyone has this desire for happiness. Blaise Pascal wrote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to the crowd around, Happiness is not found in the world. It's not found through the means of this world. It's only found in Christ and through his kingdom. Jesus is calling his disciples to abandon their pursuit of happiness in worldly prosperity, satisfaction, justice, and popularity. For true joy is only found in him. Jesus' first point is that joy is not found in prosperity. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus is recognizing the material poverty of his disciples. He's, he's recognizing that, and yet he's calling them blessed. This is so counter cultural to the way that we think and the way that really most people think. We don't think this way. We don't think, yeah, yeah, you're poor, you're, you're doing well. That's just not the way that we operate. This is the belief that's behind uh, what's commonly termed the prosperity gospel. And though most of us probably don't subscribe to that, I believe that many of us do subconsciously. Many of us functionally 
do believe the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is that God wills for you your best life now. God wants you. If his favor is on you, you will be successful in everything you do, and you'll live a long life exactly the way you want it. That's the prosperity gospel. Functionally, I think many of us believe this. I did when I went to Haiti. I went there thinking I was more blessed than my Haitian brothers and sisters. I went there thinking that I was better than them because I had more going for me. And there's nothing wrong with us going and helping um, financially in all these ways. We are called to do that. We're called to give to the poor. But the minute that I think I'm on a, a higher pedestal than them, I am missing it. In fact, they, they proved me wrong. They, they had a better understanding of their blessedness in Christ than I did. Jesus illustrates this point with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. There was a rich man and a poor man, and outside the rich man's gate was a poor man named Lazarus, and he, he laid there. At some point, the two of them passed away, and the rich man went to hell, and, the, and Lazarus went to heaven. And in this parable, the, the rich man in hell, uh, feeling the anguish of the, of the torment, calls up, seeing, uh, seeing Lazarus and Abraham by his side, calls up for just a moment of, of relief. And Abraham responds to him saying, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. In this parable, Jesus is destroying the belief that material riches show God's favor. That's not the case. There will be many rich people in hell and many poor people in heaven. It's not based on our material riches as to God's favor. It's our identity in Christ. That is the only difference. Lazarus had repented of his sins, and Jesus bore the curse of his sin, and the rich man did not. Lazarus deserved to be there too, but only by the grace of Jesus was Lazarus with Abraham. If we believe this, we believe that material riches, they don't hold value in the economy of God, then we ought to steward what we have for the kingdom, for eternal purposes. John Piper writes this, God increases our yield so that by giving we can prove that our yield is not our God. God does not prosper a man's business so that he can move from a Ford to a Cadillac. God prospers a business so that thousands of unreached people can be reached with the gospel. He prospers a business so that 20% of the world's population can move a step back from the precipice of starvation. You see, following Jesus changes the way that we see our money. Money is no longer a means to our joy, but means of expressing our joy in Christ. My question for you is this. What does your spending say about who you worship? Money tends to show where our heart is and where we value things. Jesus' second point is that joy is not found in worldly satisfaction. 
He says, blessed are you who are hungry now. Who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now. For you shall be hungry. Firstly, Jesus is recognizing the physical needs of the disciples. They feel hunger. Hunger is much less abstract than wealth. It's, it's, it's something that you can feel. It's discomfort. It's, it's a weakness. But there's a general principle here, too. Oftentimes, the physical can, can affect our spiritual lives, too. Notice that, man, I did not have, and I still don't think I have as, such a faith as my Haitian brothers and sisters do in something that they have is, is hunger. And here's the thing about hunger. Everyone who is hungry has something in common. They need something. When we're hungry, we recognize that we, we need something. We need food. And the tendency here is that when we recognize we need help, that can flow into other places. It can humble us. Do we recognize that we need help? Jesus, when responding to the Pharisees who were concerned by his affiliation with sinners, Luke 5 said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees need Jesus too, but they don't, they don't realize that. They're not hungry. They think they're full. But the sinners, they were hungry. And so Jesus was there to feed them. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Many will indulge themselves in the things of this world, trying to fill themselves up. Many believing that they're full, but yet they keep going back. And one day, death will empty their pockets, and they won't be satisfied. Jesus is saying here that nothing in this world will satisfy the hunger of your heart except for the joy that's found in him. My question for you and me, what are you uncomfortable with sacrificing for the kingdom of God? Are there things that you hold on to, that you depend on, that you need? And, and it's good to, to have some form of, of, of people around you and dependence, but is our dependence solely on Christ? If we lost the things that we hold dear, would we lose faith? And if God called you to sacrifice your job, your comforts, your nice home, whatever it is, are you willing to sacrifice it for the kingdom of God? Do you see that in the economy of God, what is here and what is now is not lasting? But the kingdom of God is. Jesus' third point is that joy is not found in justice. He says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Jesus is recognizing the brokenness of this world, and he's, 
He's saying, the disciples aren't spared from this. I recognize that you, you are weeping, but there is laughter to come. He says, weep now. Jesus is, is recognizing and, and is affirming the fact it's okay to weep. We should go to God with our pain. David in, in Psalm 6 writes, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Jesus is also saying that joy and emotional pain are not in contradiction. He acknowledges, blessed are you who weep. And yet he commands them to rejoice. You know, even Jesus wept for Lazarus. This is a different Lazarus, but he wept for Lazarus knowing that he would raise him from the dead. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. You see, we can keep joy in the midst of our pain because of the comfort that we find in the promises of God. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, joy. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When he returns, he will make all things right, and every tear will be wiped away. Our joy in Christ transcends the pain of this world because of the hope we have in the kingdom. We can keep joy and we can keep peace even in the midst of our pain, and we need to go to God with that. My question for you is this. Are you willing to praise God in the midst of suffering? Are you willing to say, like my Haitian brothers and sisters, merci Jésus. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for blessing me, even in the midst of this. Give me the strength to keep going. Jesus' fourth point is that joy is not found in worldly popularity. It says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus is recognizing the hostility that the world has towards his disciples. And he's reminding them that it's worth the cost. In Luke 21, Jesus warns us of such persecution. He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. 
By your endurance, you will gain your lives. By our lives, Jesus, he can't be saying our worldly life. He just said that some of you may die. He's talking about our heavenly, eternal life. In Acts, Luke um, explains and, and tells the story of, of the disciples and the persecution that they went through. And he records after they had just been beaten and in prison. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. How is that possible? How do you rejoice in suffering when the world hates you? Well, first, they understood that the world would hate them, but they sought approval from no one apart from Christ. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It is so tempting to conform to culture for the sake of approval. And many Christians have. On biblical marriage, on the sanctity of life. You see, the desire for approval is good, but only the approval of our Father in heaven will lead to joy. My question for you is this. Who do you turn to for approval apart from Christ? Who are you obeying and in doing so disobeying? Jesus. These disciples, they also understood the big point here. They understood that joy is only found in Christ. In Philippians 3.8, Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. These disciples, by persevering with joy, proclaim to the world that Jesus is all-satisfying. With our, our Haitian brothers, they say, Merci, Jésus. Thank you, Jesus. You are all-satisfying. And in fact, that's the only command that Jesus gives here. Rejoice. We've all pursued happiness in this world. But communion with God is what we were designed for. That's the only thing that will bring us true and lasting happiness, joy. And our sin got in the way. That's why Jesus came to restore our communion with God, to restore Eden. In Galatians 3, 13 to 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Through his death, Jesus bore the curse that we deserved. We deserve to be oofed. And he took it for us. And through his resurrection, he provides us the blessing of the kingdom. In his ascension, he sent the Spirit to indwell us so that God and man would be in communion again, again. And now we are sent as his representatives, as the body of Christ to the world, to expand the kingdom so that others might profit from the blessing too. And though the curse still lingers in this world and in this life, we will still have tribulation. We have full assurance that in the return of Christ, the curse will be destroyed forever in hell. And the blessing of the kingdom will be here for all of us to enjoy forever in communion with God. If this is what we believe, then why do we fall for the lie? Why are we so distracted by this world and our prosperity here? Only Jesus can provide what our heart desires. Psalm 37, 4. This is, this is my life verse. I love this verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God has given us desires, desires for prosperity, desires for satisfaction, desires for justice, desires for popularity, and they are good. But when we seek them in and of themselves, it's sin. This passage doesn't say, delight yourself in your heart's desires. It says, delight yourself in God. And he will satisfy your desires. You see, even heaven without God would not be enough. Because we enjoy the gift because of who the giver is. I think of a girl who's given a ring in marriage. I'm sure she loves the ring. But why does she like the ring? Because who gave her the ring? As citizens of the kingdom of God, the things of this world are not the means to our joy, but means of expressing our joy in Christ. This means that when we realize our blessedness in Christ, we are liberated from the bondage to the things of this world such that we are empowered to steward our lives for the kingdom no matter the sacrifice. Those of us who are successful hold to it lightly and will sacrifice anything for the kingdom of God. And those of us who are struggling, we keep joy because of the hope we have in Christ. No matter what our situation is, our identity in Christ is what holds us firm. And this is what we proclaim to the world that Jesus is all satisfying. And as we delight ourselves in God, what he loves, we learn to love with increasing intensity. And who does he love? He loves the world. We need to learn to love like he loves. We are his representatives to the world. You know, he loved the world so much that he died. And we can't give little sacrifices.
I'm thinking of the situation even right now in our country. Praise God for the lives that will be saved. But are we willing to sacrifice our money, a space in our home, whatever it takes for single mothers who are struggling now? Can we love them the way that Christ loves them? Can we proclaim to the world God loves you and he wants to save you and he died so that you might be saved. My final question for you is this. How can you express your joy in Christ through your current situation? Whatever it may be. How can we, like my Haitian brothers and sisters, say, Merci, Jésus. Thank you, Jesus, wherever we are, so that the world around will see that and see that Christ is all satisfying. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for everything that you have done for us. I ask that you would open our hearts to the truth that you are enough. Let us experience the same joy that the disciples experienced, that they could rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Teach us to love like you love, willing to lose anything for the sake of the kingdom, that just one more might make it to heaven. I pray this all in your son's name. Amen.